Is there a big problem with the Opportunity Zones program? Listen in as Thomas Morgan joins me today to discuss the recent New York Times article and the challenges of raising Opportunity Zone capital for projects in blighted locations. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson, and returning to the show today is Thomas Morgan. Thomas, as you may remember, is a commercial real estate developer, broker, and investor, and he was previously on my podcast back in February to discuss Opportunity Zones versus 1031 exchanges and how Opportunity Zones present an alternative to 1031 exchange strategies. And we also discussed impact investing as well, and I'll have links to these episodes in the show notes for today's episode, which you can find at opportunitydb.com podcast. Thomas joins us today from the road in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. He's outside of his office, which is uh, normally in Aspen. So Thomas, thanks for taking the time to join us on the road today. Welcome back. Hi, Jimmy. Great to be with you again. Yeah, you bet, man. It's uh, good to catch up. For those who may have missed the episodes with you back in February, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and just a quick intro and what you're up to in the Opportunity Zone and impact investing space? Yeah, Jimmy. uh, My main business is 1031navigator.com, which is a national 1031 exchange uh, replacement property service. We mainly broker triple net properties, passive income properties, and help people defer taxes using the 1031 section of the Internal Revenue Code. And then I do uh, several of my own development and investment projects. Um, Done a bunch of mobile home parks and multifamily apartment buildings, uh, small subdivisions, a uh, couple of mixed use historic projects, stuff like that. And then we're also working on our impact investment fund, which is called Compound Global. And that's essentially a triple bottom line, uh, you know, financial return, environmental return, and some sort of social return in addition, you know, trying to hit all three of those returns for impact. Good. Good. And and I know that uh, the Opportunity Zones uh, component there is going to help form some of your capital stack, or at least that's the hope. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that a little bit later in the show. But but to start us off today, I want to talk about that New York Times article that ran um, a little bit of a little bit more than a week ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago now, August 31st, I believe, um, is big news in our community and in the Opportunity Zones industry. It's not every day that uh, the New York Times covers the Opportunity Zones industry on the front page above the fold. Uh, it was, it was uh, it was it was pretty big here, yep. and it uh, created a lot of discussion among um, among us in the Opportunity Zone space. Uh, the article pointed out some successes of the program in Erie, Pennsylvania, and Birmingham, Alabama, specifically. But overall, the article was largely critical of the program, and you know it referred to it as a once in a generation bonanza for elite investors. And then it went on to mention how this program was doing a lot of good for folks like former governor Chris Christie, Jared Kushner's family, Anthony Scaramucci to name a few and um and the article even presented a rather pessimistic view from Aaron Siebert who is the social investment officer at the Kresge Foundation. He was quoted as saying that the capital is going to flow to the lowest risk, highest return environment. Perhaps 95% of this 
is doing no good for the people we care about. Um, I should point out that Aaron, a couple of days later, kind of clarified his remarks and, and uh, you know, his, 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 he's not totally pessimistic about the program. Uh, and I'll link to the, uh, I'll link to the article that, that he posted separately in the show notes for this podcast. Uh, but, but over, overall, the, the article was, was fairly critical of the program, you know, it basically made the, the argument that, you know, this, this was benefiting just a very f- small group of elite investors and, and wasn't really doing what it was meant to do or what it is meant to do. Thomas, what, what did you make of the article overall? What, what were your thoughts on it? Well, it's, it's uh, I, you know, I agree, uh, mostly with, with the entire article, uh, to a certain extent and, Case in point, I, you know, I happen to be coming to you today from Linwood Springs, Colorado, which is just outside of Aspen, Colorado, and just outside, you know, just down the highway from Vail, Colorado, where both places, the you know, homes are 10, 20, even $40 million. And Linwood Springs, uh, for example, most of it is an opportunity zone. Uh, but by all practical purposes, it you know it it doesn't fit the opportunity zone mold. It's you know it's low income for this area, but not anywhere close to most of the country or or most of the opportunity zones. So I think um, the article when you know pointing to gentrification and different communities that maybe should have not been designated as opportunity zones. This community is case in point when. You know, it's three hundred fifty thousand dollars to buy just a normal like two bedroom condo here, or four hundred fifty thousand to even six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars to buy a single family house in Glenwood Springs. It doesn't really fit the mold of Opportunity Zone, and there's really not much real estate that's even for sale here, uh, and there's really not much vacancy. You know, if if you drive through Opportunity Zone in most of the country, you're going to see. vacancy, 70% vacancy, you're going to see, you know, vacant homes, abandoned homes, stuff like that. Whereas this community is, you know, totally not what what you would think of as an opportunity zone. So uh, I I tend to agree with the article that it's um, kind of a, a land grab to a certain extent. And you and I have talked about it in the past. It was written for a stock market boom. So people can take their gains off the table from the stock market or other investments and now they can move it into real estate and or other types of equity investments where there was previously to my knowledge there was no other way to defer taxes doing that like you can't sell stock in 1031 exchange into um, real estate you have to go like kind real estate to real estate and the opportunity zone program is the rare thing that allows you you know right now stock market at all-time high allows people to take their gains, their winnings off the table and defer taxes and then potentially ride any future games, gains tax-free. So I, I kind of think it's a land grab. I don't want to be too harsh on it because the reason I got involved in the Opportunity Zone legislation in the first place was on the impact and the triple bottom line arena. Yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, you, know, you and, and you bring up a good point. In a way, it is basically... It kind of presents a 1031 alternative. It's it's basically a 1031 exchange for stocks, right? You can think of it that way. Um, I, I so I, I hear a couple of different things from you, and I got a couple of different things from the article. For, well, first of all, I want to point out, you know, I am obviously very pro opportunity zones. I, I created an opportunity zones website that's that's very supportive of the program. Sure. I have a podcast, and all we do uh, in all of our episodes is point out how great the opportunity zones program is. But I will admit 
that the New York Times article uh, made a lot of really valid points, and and I think and I think it is correct to say. In fact, it'd be foolish not to admit that you know to date, the Opportunity Zones program has basically just been a a tax break for projects that probably already would have happened anyway without the Opportunity Zones program. Um, you know, it 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 cites the elite investors that this program is helping put up, you know, um, luxury condominiums and, and hotels. And, and, um, there's a few other examples throughout the article of, of types of projects in areas that don't really make much sense. And I will admit also that, you know, there are a handful of opportunity zones in the country of the over 8,700 opportunity zones, maybe a hundred of them or so you kind of look at and you think, huh, I don't really know if this should be an opportunity zone. I think um, that area where, um, I forget the name of it now, that, that area where, where Amazon was putting its uh, its HQ2 is one example uh, in New York City there. I think uh, possibly you're bringing up Glenwood Springs, Colorado now is maybe another area that is kind of a head scratcher. Like, why is this an opportunity zone? Uh, I would say by and large, you know, the, the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of the 8,700 plus opportunity zones around the country really do have an economic need. Um, but of course, you know, yeah, in absolutely. market investors, market rate investors are going to cherry pick the very best ones. Uh, that said, you know, I would kind of like to echo what John Lettieri said in the New York Times piece. He's the president of the Economic Innovation Group. He said uh, something to the effect of it's, it's a little bit too early to judge the program. You know, the, the, this is the first wave of investment. You know, it, it's, it only makes sense that, you know, projects that were already penciled in opportunity zones happen to be the ones that are first taking advantage of this program. The fact of the matter is it takes a long time to, to build up momentum on, on some of these projects, on some of these deals. Um, I'm still optimistic that this is going to play a, a role in in transforming some of these really economically distressed communities around the country. Um, am I 100 percent sure it will? No, I'm not. But I'm 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 optimistic it will, and I recognize that there are problems with the program as there are with with any large sweeping economic policy like this. And but overall, I'm I'm optimistic that um, you know hopefully when we look back in a few years, we'll we'll view the we'll view this the first year of this program through a different lens. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll look at the first year as, as laying the groundwork and maybe, maybe the real impact investments won't really come until years two or three or four, five, six. I mean, we, we still have several years before this program really sunsets at the end of 2026. So I think the jury's still out and, and, uh, we'll have to just kind of, we're in a, we're in wait and see mode a little bit. Um, at least me sitting on the sidelines, I'm in, I'm in wait and see mode. I know that there are real operators out there actually, um, you know, getting projects shovel ready and, and, and doing good around the, around the country. And, and I, I look forward to hearing from them in, in, in future articles um, in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and elsewhere that may cover this program in future years. Yeah, and, and, and Jimmy, I, I agree with you um, wholeheartedly that, you know, in the investing world, money flows to where the projects work, to where the projects pencil out. And that, you know, that's something we see in the impact space when things don't pencil out, it's harder to do deals. And, you know, a lot of times financial returns are 
mitigating financial risk is the most important thing. So those deals don't you know, get done or they're, they're harder to do. So it makes perfect sense what you're saying and or you know, some of your initial guests that you know, had, had echoed this at the very beginning. They had predicted that the, the deals, you know, the original deals that happen under this program are going to happen in areas that were already gentrifying or that were you know, already up and coming. They were, you know, they're already near an upscale or luxury area. And in the New York Times article, they talk about the Virgin project, you know, the Richard Branson project, that, that that project was already underway, to my understanding, before the Opportunity Zone legislation. And it's kind of just like icing on the cake for those those projects. They, they, they're just going to make those projects look better and, and easier to, to get done. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Thomas. I think uh, I think this this first wave is is going to be one type of investment, and hopefully, we'll have second, third, fourth, and and so on waves that will that will bring more real needed impact and and affect the 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 people that that this program is is trying to target. Uh, I want to shift our focus now to you. I want to hear a little bit more about what you're doing. I mean, we we're just talking about, you know, some of the challenges of the Opportunity Zone program. It's, you know, obviously it's not a perfect program. It's, it's been a little bit slow going for some. And, um, you know, there's been some criticisms of it, obviously. But, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to have you back on the show, Thomas, was to hear from someone in the trenches. You know, I, I consider you to be in the trenches, how this program is, is actually going. And maybe you can impart a little bit of wisdom on our listeners. So when we last spoke, in February, you know, you were about to launch the Compound Opportunity Fund. Uh, six or seven months have passed <laughs> since then. Now, what, what have been some of the biggest lessons you've learned about the Opportunity Zone space, and specifically about raising capital in in the Opportunity Zone space, and 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 including Opportunity Zone capital as part of your part of your capital stack? I I think um, you know hype is hype, and uh, it, you know initially on the onset there was. A lot of buzz, and, and there still is today about opportunity zones. And uh, you know, coming from the 1031 exchange space, my clients and investors you know, have always been the focus has been to defer taxes and um, you know uh, defer capital gains while making a good investment. Um, and so, the you know one of my passions has been impact investing and trying to make a an impact in the world and do something positive. You know, leave a legacy. You know th things like that, and so the opportunity zone legislation caught my interest or piqued my interest for for that reason because it's like oh I can do something good I can you know work with historic buildings we can create conservation type investments we can create you know environmental protection investments we can create you know different kinds of, of passive income in affordable housing and um, you know, different different types of investments that makes them easier to structure that have those triple bottom lines. It, it's, it's fairly easy for an investment to have a financial return and then you know, maybe have a social impact, but it's hard to lead with one of those other two and then you know, back it up with the financial. So my interest in the Opportunity Zone legislation was, to, okay, it's going to make these deals easier to do. Uh, but what I found is that the, you know, it goes back to location, location, location. And you know, I, I obviously I like to set big big goals and I, I like to talk a big game and um, you know, but when going out and talking to investors, a lot of them say, well, okay, where is the deal? And you start to talk about the the demographics and 
the unemployment rates and the poverty rates and the, the caliber of the housing stock and the you know the vacancy rates, things like that. And the investors are like, no, no, I don't, you know, I don't think I want to make uh, you know deferring taxes the most important thing. I you know it, it goes back to location. You know, I I would just do a 1031 uh, in that case. And I can buy anywhere in the country. I don't have to be limited to one of the you know, you know, opportunity zones by inherent in the definition is lower income or, or higher poverty rate. Um, so that, you know, that's been the pushback I've received. And, you know, but luckily for me, like I said, the, the reason to get into it wasn't just for the tax benefits or to be focused in opportunity zones. You know, we were focused on the impact first. And we've actually, you know, through some of our opportunity zone marketing, have reached new types of investors who really what they wanted were truly impact investments or let's say sustainable type investments. And they're still on board. And so we're, we're moving forward with our impact fund 100%. But we've, we had to put the brakes on the opportunity zone fund because I only got about a 10% commitment uh, or even less of the initial funds. You know, we, we didn't hire a third party fundraiser or anything. We were just doing this through networking and making sure we follow the securities laws and whatnot, pre-existing relationships. So, you know, we could have hit the ground harder and probably raised more money, but. Okay, Thomas. So what were, what were some problems with, with, uh, selling investors on opportunity zones specifically? And, and so how has, and, and then how has your approach changed since then? So the, I think Jimmy, there was there was two main uh, pushbacks. One was the location of the deals, and we you know we were focused on impact first type projects, and uh, you know we we didn't hire a third party fundraiser, and we weren't trying to go into the gentrified areas where deals were going to get done already, like we previously talked about. We were trying new areas or you know projects that we thought would work. Um, in you know, in more of you know, the intended um, goal of, of the program, but when people started asking about the locations and the demographics, it, it there's a lot of pushback on the unemployment rates, the poverty levels, the vacancy rates, or you know, high vacancy rates, stuff like that, caliber of the the buildings, the housing stock, um, and people just you know the, the location 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 they just didn't you know, or don't want to put their money in a, tr- a true opportunity zone you know i think if if it's Glenwood springs or boulder colorado or austin texas or you know san francisco new york city miami like big you know big big markets uh people are fine with that but when you say you know i have a, a deal south of charlotte north carolina um you know population 8000 people they, you know, they, they don't, it doesn't really pique their interest. It's not, not sexy for lack of a better word. And then the second uh, objection is just the, the complexity of the tax code and trying to explain to them what the tax benefits are, when they're going to get them. Um, you know, I've had pushback on the capital gains rate in 2026. What's that going to be if a democratic uh, administration comes into power? Yes, they, they can defer the taxes now, but what rate are they going to have to pay the taxes then? Um, so, you know, two main objections, one location and, and two, just the complexity of the tax benefits. Yeah, those are big obje- objections. I mean, this is, you know, it, 1031s in some way are a lot less flexible than opportunity zones. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to go real estate to real estate. 
you know you can, you can take some money off the table if you want to with opportunity zones but in other ways it's it's more flexible because you can you can pick a property anywhere in the country it's not restricted by geography uh and then yeah certainly the the regulatory aspect of the opportunity zones program is is fairly complex in fact it's uh, actually highly complex and the rules still aren't 100% finalized yet and you're absolutely right there's a there's a tax rate risk we don't know what the what that capital gains tax rate is going to be in 2026 and we're not going to find out for another uh, six, seven, eight years or so. Um, and yeah, it kind of depends who the president is then, who's who's running the show and what type of administration we have. So, uh, Thomas, another thing we were talking about on the phone last week when we, when we were chatting was uh, about the mentality of different investors, uh, the mentality of passive stock investors versus entrepreneurial real estate investors. Can you talk a little bit about that? For our listeners, and and tell us how that comes into play when it when it comes to raising OZ capital. You know, my history, Jimmy, is with high net worth investors uh, that have either been successful business operators in their own right, and or successful real estate company operators. You know, hands on in in either scenario. And so, so one, you know, when, when we were raising money for our opportunity fund. We're probably barking up the wrong tree because all the people you know we were talking to through our pre-existing relationships were were hands-on operators. They like to roll up their sleeves, do their own deals. They like to control the deal. They don't like partners. You know, they're they're a lot of a lot of them say, you know, two partners is one too many. You know, so uh, they they're just they weren't really the right fit. Um, and you know, ten, my 1031 clients have kind of been the same way. They, they like to come in, buy a property outright. And I, I've had a lot of discussions with people, not only on the fundraising side to invest in the fund, but also people looking to just buy an opportunity zone property outright with those, you know, those same clients. And they don't typically want to one take, you know, it goes back. They don't want to take that location risk. So, so even if they weren't investing in our opportunity fund, if, let's say I found them a really good deal. We'll use that deal. Uh, just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, um, you know, six thousand square foot medical building, distressed seller. It appraised for almost a million bucks. Could have bought it or or sold it to somebody for like seven fifty, eight hundred. So you're already making money, you know, on on the front end. Uh, and then you you spend some time leasing it or, or rehabbing it. It's easily going to be worth a million too. You know, if, if you got an urgent care clinic or some other kind of uh, medical clinic in there. There's three, four hundred thousand dollars worth of profit in the deal, like really with not much risk. It's a busy highway location just down the street from the hospital. But at the end of the day, a lot of investors, they're like, I don't want to have to, you know, mess with the substantial improvement requirement. I don't want to have to wait for the capital gains tax rate risk. Um, so, you know, so I had pushback on the fund. But also just even, you know, that that's just one deal example of, um, you know, people just you know, not wanting to just buy a property outright. Uh, where on the flip side, and I think kind of what you're alluding to is if people have invested in stocks, they're accustomed to giving up control and letting the, you know, CEO or the marketing team or, you know, the company owners, or, you know, the company managers, excuse me managing the, the company and the investment. Um, and then there's maybe some professional management along with the executive team. And that's, I think, is much more suited for opportunity zone fund investing 
if you're sitting there and you have five hundred thousand dollars of gain, you really can't get too many good opportunity zone properties outright. And and frankly, you can't get too many 1031 exchange properties outright. So it makes sense if if you have let's say 50,000, 250,000, maybe even up to a million dollars cash uh, or gain, you know, gain from uh, the stock market and you're, you're okay with other people managing your money and, and, and you probably already are already comfortable with that, then that, you know, opportunity zones present a real, real great opportunity for people. Yeah. I, I thought that was an interesting conclusion that, that we reached uh, the other day. I, I don't know how much truth there is to it, but it's it's certainly interesting to to think about the mentality of passive stock investors used to, you know, just putting their money with a wealth advisor or or into a mutual fund or or a basket of uh, index ETFs and and just kind of letting it ride very passively versus you know someone who is wheeling and dealing in real estate and and used to exerting a lot of control over over their investments down to down to down to all the last details you know those those two types of people are going to behave a lot differently and have a lot different mentality when it comes to um taking taking capital gains off the table what do they do with it next the i think your point is the those passive stock investors might be better suited for for opportunity zone fund investing whereas a entrepreneurial real estate investor Maybe better suited to a 1031. Is that, I mean, is that is that basically what uh, what your takeaway has been? Yeah, and, and you know, Jimmy, in the in the 1031 space, one of the rare things you can do with, without having to buy a property. If you're going from property to property, you, you know, you typically have to you sell a property you own and, and then buy a property that you're going to own outright. You can't typically invest in LLC units. You can't invest in funds. You can't invest in REITs. But the one exception is what's called a Delaware Statutory Trust or a DST. And you can actually buy percentage ownerships. It, it used to be called a, a tenant in common, which is a, a, a type of uh, you know, deeded ownership in a property. And a lot of the investors I've worked with in the 1031 space, if, if they've sold the property and they own a property, they, they won't do the DST. They just, you, you know, you say, look, you have... Two hundred thousand dollars left over from your exchange. You might you're going to pay tax on it. You can do the DST to take up the difference. They're just like, no, I'm not going to give my money to some you know to an outside manager to control. Um, however, where if if I work with doctors or lawyers who are more accustomed to the stock market, they they actually prefer DSTs. Where so if they they come to me and say, look, I have a million dollars from a 1031. I want to buy a property and we go down that road of, okay, this is what the property looks like. This, you know, it's a 10 year net lease. It's a seven cap, you know, 7% return. It's a investment grade credit, but you might have to take care of the roof, you know, occasionally all of a sudden those types of investors say, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't, I don't want to have to do anything. I don't want to have to manage anything. So what else do you have? And I, you know, I'm not a securities broker, so I can't sell DSTs. But then you, but they go to a DST provider, and they can invest in let, let's say, you know, they can buy ten percent of a ten million dollar building or five percent of a twenty million dollar building, things like that. They can buy a percentage ownership, and I think those types of investors who are accustomed to that, they don't want to have to have any day to day management. They don't want to have to have any remodel expertise. They don't want to have to have any redevelopment risk. Those are perfect for 
1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, and I think the Opportunity Zone program is yet to see that influx of capital. So I think that's where some of this redeeming, you know, the redemption could come from and deals getting done all over, not just in the you know top 5% of Opportunity Zones. Yeah. So, what, you know, before we uh, wrap up the episode today, what, what, where do you see this going over the next several years? Are you, are you it sounds like from what I'm hearing, there's been a struggle to, tap into that channel um, for a lot of funds, for a lot of real estate developers to reach that smaller investor. Yeah, I, I agree. Yep. What do you think may or may not change there? Do you have a pessimistic view or do you have an optimistic view? What, what do you think is going to end up unfolding here over the next few years? If you can look into your crystal ball for us. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think um, it's a, uh, you know, real estate problem or a tax code problem. I, I think it's more of a, a education and a marketing problem for guys like you and me and you know all you know a lot of the other guests on the episode is to educate investors who have gains and who don't want to do a 1031 or or can't do a 1031 because they're in the stock market or they're in a privately held business. You know, let's say their family's owned a a car dealership for 20 years and they're, they're selling it and they, they, they want to defer the taxes. They, you know, they want, you know, like people can put their tax money to work in other ways besides paying uncle Sam. And that's what this program is set up for. And I think it's a matter of educating those stock market investors, the equity investors and the private uh, business owners who, you know, who aren't in the elite, you know, aren't in that subset that the original tax code, you know, I think the tax code, Jimmy was, was written for the elite, and then it was championed by the true recipients with you know, Cory Booker and, and then also the senator uh, in South Carolina. Th- those, those con- their, their constituents were the ones that are supposed to receive this, the benefits of this. And so I, I think it's just an education problem. If you, know, if you don't have a top tier law firm or accounting firm, and you have a lot of stock market gains from the last 10 years, okay, how could I defer taxes? And, you know, and how do you structure it? And I think fund managers and um, you know, I think real estate brokers, I think property owners in opportunity zones. I think there's a real opportunity on that. Uh, and then I, I still think there's a huge opportunity on the impact side of you know with what's happening with global warming and social justice and refugees and immigration and whatnot. And that we, you know whether we disagree or agree on that stuff, there's a huge investment opportunity in all of those things. And I think opportunity zones are uniquely qualified you know, to fulfill that niche. Oh, I hope you're right. So, well, overall, uh, you know, we started off, uh, with kind of, uh, some down news about opportunity zones and, 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 and a realistic view of, of what, <laughs> and a realistic view of what, uh, what has transpired here over the course of the first, uh, year plus of the program and, and the types of investments we've seen come in and, and the lack of investment we've seen from, from certain investors and, and the, the struggle that some funds have had uh, getting investors on board. And I agree with you. I think there is an education gap um, that needs to be filled. And uh, we're working on it uh, one day at a time, one podcast episode at a time, right? So uh, Thomas, thanks for joining me today. Before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and, and anything you're working on? 
I, I think, you know, similar to what we talked about, the, the opportunity zone legislation has become secondary for us. And we're, you know, going all in on the impact space. So compound.global, uh, that, that's the URL, the word compound.global. There's no .com or anything. Uh, just go there if you're interested in hearing about triple bottom line, impact investing, um, you know, different types of investments in, you know, alternative categories. Compound.global. Good. Well, for our listeners out there, I'll have show notes for today's episode. You can find all of the links that Thomas and I discussed on today's show. I'll have a link to that New York Times article and and more. Uh, you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Thomas, thanks for joining me again and uh, hope to chat with you again soon. Well, thanks, Jimmy, for having me. I, I really appreciate you having me back on. I love what you're doing. I think there's plenty of runway left in the Opportunity Zone program for you know, Opportunity DB and, and all the different uh, resources you provide to investors and fund managers and other people in the Opportunity Zone space. Absolutely, Thomas. All right. Take care. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.